This is a diet of Brussels. How's it going with this new relationship? Well, we are now uh, nearly halfway through February, uh, which means we've had about five, six weeks of the operation of the Trade and Cooperation Agreements and of the Northern Ireland's Protocol. And I think the general impression is that this is going, well, maybe as well as could be expected, uh, is ambiguous enough to cover pretty much any uh, outcome. Uh, it's clear that there are issues uh, that are um, present, uh, as well as uh, some things that are going to be uh, I think, real difficulties uh, in the coming months uh, and years. So let's think a little bit about this. And this is really what this episode is about, is is this system working uh, and going to work? Let's deal with the, the first question uh, on that uh, regards. Uh, is the system working? And here uh, we have a certain difficulty because... Plenty of businesses appreciated that there would be disruption uh, around the end of the transition period uh, on New Year's Eve uh, and the start of the new arrangements. And, of course, given that this was uh, all done very much at the last minute, uh, a little bit too literally, uh, the prudent course for many traders was simply to say, let's not try and do too much uh, in January, let's see what comes out uh, in terms of actual decisions before putting things uh, into motion. So lots of uh, traders decided to uh, schedule production stops, uh, brief delays on imports and exports uh, around New Year's Eve, uh, precisely because they didn't want to get caught up in the immediate rush of it all. So a big consequence was that the volume of traffic uh, that was uh, crossing uh, the short straits uh, fell very markedly uh, and has been growing back up. We're back now, according to, to Dover, to about 90% of normal volumes of uh, lorries passing through their ports which has been helpful in terms of reducing pressure on systems. And uh, that is one area that clearly has not got up to speed. We still are seeing the construction of lorry parks, the implementation of new processes and policies, uh, people having to make full use of the grace periods that have been put in place in the trade and cooperation agreement. And still, uh, with all of that, uh, Clearly, everyone has been learning uh, or relearning how to fill out numerous, numerous forms. So lots of tales of uh, businesses uh, having to produce uh, 70 or 80 pages of paperwork for a consignment. Uh, many stories about uh, uh, people being turned back uh, because they didn't have the necessary paperwork or they had an error or they didn't have a Kent Access permit or, or things like that. However, that's only really part of the story. Whilst uh, bigger businesses, I think, have been able to make the adjustment relatively successfully, 
Um, and you see more stories now of businesses who've done some trial runs, get confident that they've made things work. It's clear that that is not a universal picture. And one of the emerging stories of January and now February has been smaller traders who perhaps didn't really have the capacity to think about how things worked, uh, didn't have the resource to put in place the necessary provisions, uh, or who just simply uh, hoped that there would be some way around these kinds of things. Emblematic in this are uh, fish uh, and shellfish uh, businesses that are discovering that now the steps put in place uh, through a mixture Partly, it must be said, of COVID, but also of the TCA arrangements, simply make it uh, impossible to provide the same speed of uh, delivery from uh, catch to plate uh, that historically they've been able to do. And remember that uh, in that particular sector, the majority of uh, fish caught in the UK uh, are sold in the EU. And freshness is obviously a uh, key criterion in all of this. Likewise, you're seeing uh, emergent uh, problems of the same kind around Northern Ireland, where the understanding of no barriers between North and South has, I think, lured some people into a sense of, well, things just carry on as they did before, without really appreciating that still there would be uh, some disruption and some exceptions, not so much between North and South, uh, but between East and West, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And we've uh, all heard stories about uh, uh, restrictions on uh, cuttings and bulbs and soil, not been allowed into Northern Ireland from GB uh, because uh, Northern Ireland is treated as part of the same epidemiological unit as uh, the Republic, which means that uh, you need to have a satisfying of the various provisions. So if you like, much of this period has been about discovery that the real lived conditions of how this is going to work have become more apparent uh, in practice to uh, all involved. Partly that's about businesses, but it's also about uh, government uh, agencies, uh, other operators, uh, all of whom are discovering that there are issues. And importantly, uh, this is not the full implementation of all of the provisions. Uh, those grace periods provide for some important uh, waiving of rules, uh, most obviously for the access of food to Northern Ireland uh, for the next uh, few months. We still haven't had the uh, uh, ending of the uh, grace periods around uh, other areas of the trade and cooperation agreement, all of which will kick in in the next uh, few months. And when they do, that will be an additional thing that has to be uh, brought online. And one can safely assume that there will be somebody who hasn't really appreciated that this is not the end point, uh, and so sets themselves up comfortably as it is, uh, only to discover in May or in July that things have changed again.
that I think is all understandable. Uh, it's clear that in any enterprise like this, there were always going to be people who were not up to speed or could not be up to speed, uh, or if you forcibly had to wait until the, the arrangements were known to make the change. Uh, that's equally evident if you think that the uh, preparation uh, period uh, was relatively short, even in a broad sense, but also in a specific sense that uh, it was literally a week before uh, the rules came in, that the rules were known uh, and written down anywhere and in not a particularly accessible uh, manner. So whilst the UK government and EU member state governments and the Commission had all tried to put uh, various uh, preparations in place, uh, ad campaigns, information to businesses, that was still relatively uh, backloaded, certainly in the case of the UK. And uh, the extent to which people knew about all this, I think, was uh, uneven. Maybe that's the word we can use. However, all of that is, if you like, transitional. Um, in any shift of systems, you're going to have a degree of friction in which uh, actors adjust their behavior, adjust their practice uh, according to new situations on the ground. What is perhaps more problematic is that there are clearly now new arrangements and even if you make them work as well as they can work there will be issues and will be problems. And here again I think we have to separate out a bit Northern Ireland from uh, the TCA as a whole. Most obviously uh, TCA brings in a whole new uh, volume of paperwork and of regulatory checks that didn't previously exist. And even if you can do those efficiently, you still have to do them. And so that provides a deadweight cost to business, uh, both between the UK and the EU, and between the EU and the UK, that will have to be borne by somebody. Now, either that is the producer, or it is the importer, or it is the customer. Um, it's not going to be the government because the government doesn't seem to be interested in uh, supporting or offsetting those costs to anybody at this stage. One of the consequences is that in the more medium term we're going to see adjustment of trade, diversion of trade. We can see that already uh, in a very literal sense with the sudden proliferation of direct ferry services between the Republic of Ireland and other EU member states, bypassing the land bridge which has been for the past uh, few decades the mainstay of Ireland's uh, economic connection to the EU. Now, how much that uh, adjustment uh, persists uh, in terms of avoiding all of the hassle of trying to get your goods through the UK is a bit hard to say. But certainly, to go uh, from uh, what I think was one uh, ferry a week to nine different services, many with uh, multiple sailings uh, a day, is a huge increase and one which is likely to be sticky to least some uh, extent. 
So you're going to find that the UK is a less attractive destination uh, for exporters uh, in the EU, that the EU uh, will be less attractive as a market for UK producers. And so either uh, that trade gets diverted into uh, third countries or you have uh, some efforts to uh, replace uh, drops in imports from uh, EU countries. So for UK producers, it may be that uh, losses uh, of access in the EU is offset by uh, improved competitiveness within the UK uh, because uh, EU producers now have to charge a whole lot more. But that is something that still, if we follow classical economic theory, is likely to end up with uh, an outcome that is economically suboptimal, that you won't have the same economies of scale, the same pressures of competition that you've had before, which is likely to result in uh, either increased prices or reduced uh, choice for UK uh, customers, which in turn then has a wider knock-on effect across the economy. Likewise, uh, we have to see quite what happens in terms of Northern Ireland, in terms of a redirection of Northern Ireland from uh, the UK or from GB towards the Republic uh, because that border remains relatively uh, porous uh, compared to the one across the Irish Sea uh, back into GB. Again, here we have a slightly different situation because of the wider context uh, of the Good Friday Agreement, of the relative peripherality, gosh, peripherality of the Irish economy in the European uh, scheme of things, which means that uh, the UK still is a relatively dominant uh, economic uh, actor in comparison. But certainly, uh, the argument that uh, is floated around that this protocol reinforces pressures towards a closer relationship between North and South uh, and a, a weakening of East and West ties is one that is likely to come back uh, uh, in political terms in the years to come. However, all of what I've talked about so far in this first section has been about trade, and trade is only part of what this is. Perhaps the more worrying uh, manifestation that we have seen uh, since January has been the continuation of the tetchy relationship between the UK and the EU. Throughout January and through to now, we've had a whole series of really unnecessary spats uh, between the two sides about things that really are not that important uh, in the grand scheme of things, but uh, you know, aid the smooth operation of things, and uh, which, even when they have become known, haven't become big causes taken up by uh, home constituencies. 
So it's not even that you know we make a symbolic fight on X, Y, and Z uh, because we know we'll gain some uh, clear benefits with our, our home audience. Uh, it just seems to be uh, at one level just bloody mindedness and pettiness. So in this, we might think about uh, the uh, issues such as the UK's uh, decision not to keep uh, the EU's ambassador in London at the same diplomatic uh, status that uh, he has had previously. We might also think about the events uh, that we've had this week where uh, the UK seemed to be uh, suggesting that uh, there'd be no need to extend the provisional application past the end of February because uh, the EU hadn't asked for an extension, even though we've known since basically early January that the EU had no intention or capacity to do that uh, timescale and so would be extend asking to extend through into April. Now this last one seems to have diffused itself a bit. Um, uh, David Frost giving evidence uh, shortly after Michael Gove had made this statement uh, yesterday uh, noted that uh, informal information had just been received which uh, might be code for I've read my Twitter feed uh, but uh, I think really is somewhat uh, disingenuous as a, an argument. Much much more serious has been the argument around Article 16 now, for those uh, of you who haven't spent time with the Northern Ireland Protocol, Article 16 is a safeguards measure which allows for, in exceptional circumstances and rather limited circumstances, uh, the application of uh, measures to protect uh, the interests of one party in the case of certain uh, major disruptions. And those should be time limited, they should be as small as possible, as brief as possible. Uh, and everyone should work very hard to uh, avoid them. Now, there had been a big concern uh, through 2020, whereas there was talk about the implementation that you know Article 16 just should be invoked. And certainly in January, uh, Northern Ireland politicians were saying, invoke Article 16, look at all this disruption, all these problems, uh, we should invoke Article 16, which is not at all what that provision is for. Uh, that disruption was to go back to my first point uh, about transitional adjustments and again the dawning realisation that uh, things were not as they had used to be. So whilst the focus was on the UK uh, when it came to Article 16, it was in fact the EU that ended up making what seemed to be the first move on this. Um, rather than getting into details of it, essentially uh, the EU's uh, problems with securing vaccine doses uh, led to a political decision within the Commission that there needed to be some kind of demonstration that uh, doses of vaccine made in the EU uh, were going to where they were supposed to be. Uh, and so the Commission decided to invoke uh, a process of requiring member states to check where vaccines uh, were going and check that everything was in order. And that this was seen as a step short of stopping uh, EU production going out of the EU, most notably to the UK, um, but uh, you know, it was partly a deflection from the rather pitiful progress of securing vaccines and administering vaccines 
uh, within the 27th. In a somewhat unbelievable move, somebody in the Commission decided that actually you needed to close the Northern Ireland uh, loophole that goods, uh, the vaccines could go into the Republic, cross freely into Northern Ireland, and then from Northern Ireland could go freely into the UK. And as such, uh, said, well, we invoke Article 16, uh, or we'll invoke Article 16 uh, to stop that happening. Now, that came out in a draft uh, regulation uh, last week and almost immediately was retracted or withdrawn. This case is, is problematic for a number of reasons. Firstly, because uh, it suggests that not all parts of the Commission are equally up to speed on the importance of uh, the protocol uh, or indeed the consequences, the political consequences of trying to raise Article 16. Um, quite aside from some procedural matters which really require the Commission to have uh, told the, e the UK that this was their plan uh, a long time uh, uh, before uh, they had got to uh, the point of uh, publishing a draft piece of legislation. Uh, it, it really highlights the fact that Brexit issues have become uh, rather compartmentalised uh, within what was uh, the task force um, on Brexit. And it really it took some hasty interventions from people like Michel Barnier uh, and from uh, the EU's Commissioner in London to diffuse this. Now the Commission apologised for this uh, and rightly got a lot of stick uh, for doing this. But tellingly, whilst the UK had maintained a degree of uh, holier-than-thou uh, approach uh, up till that point when there had been mutterings about what they might, the Commission might want to do, this was all rather undone with the letter that came from Michael Gove uh, to Maris Sheshkovic, uh, his counterpart uh, in the Joint Committee, uh, which basically demanded that uh, in the light of all of this, there needed to be extensions of various grace periods and uh, commitments to uh, push through uh, such priority issues as uh, pet travel, uh, which was one of the demands that uh, Gove made. And if the EU didn't sort this out almost immediately to the UK satisfaction, then all options were on the table, uh, which uh, came uh, shortly after Boris Johnson had uh, not refused uh, to consider uh, using Article 16 uh, himself. Now, that letter, I think, really highlights the, the issue that we confront, which is that the UK still sees itself as having a position of leverage uh, on such issues. Um, in much the same way that we saw with this issue that came up yesterday uh, about extensions, that uh, the apparent dawning of realisation of how the protocol will work and the trouble that that might cause uh, the government in London translates back into, well, we should use our leverage to wring concessions out of the EU. And uh, a lot of uh, tough rhetoric 
which then comes with a well with what with an idea that somehow it's possible to uh, move uh, the commission uh, just because uh, the, the UK uh, desires it. Now, at the best of times, I think this would be a push, but really what it reflects is a continuing lack of acceptance to understand that the UK is not a member state of the EU, uh, that it has left and now it is in the position of being a third state. And in that in mind, uh, it, it has to largely suffer uh, the decisions that come out of the EU system. And as I think the Article 16 uh, case neatly illustrates, not all parts of the EU care that much about the UK. Um, there are certain units that have responsibility for this and you know when they got to it they kind of sought to uh, deal with the problem but that's a rather different issue from uh, the one that uh, you know the UK might have expected which is that there's a general concern for the UK's interests throughout the system. Part of the explanation for this is that the UK seems to be unwilling to engage in a big project of holding the EU close. Um, in practical terms, what this means is knowing what's going on, spreading its influence as wide as it can through contact with all institutions, through all channels that are available, through parliamentarians, through uh, the UK mission in Brussels, through third-party organisations, through civil servants, through politicians. All of these things are things which would logically seem to be useful in terms of knowing what is happening and helping to smooth out issues as they emerge rather than having to engage in more extreme action once they have emerged. Why this is, is not entirely clear. It's been a fairly consistent line from observers uh, that this is something that's needed. Uh, to some extent, the government recognises this. The UK mission is larger than it has been for uh, pretty much any point in its history when it was the permanent representation because there is still a desire uh, and a need to know what is coming down the line. However, I think the other message that we take from these recent events is that there still is this, uh, what somebody described online as a, a Cummings kind of model, which is permanent war. You fight every issue at every occasion, regardless. You keep things in a permanent state of anxiety uh, and tension in order to uh, unsettle and disorientate and hopefully gain something from it. Now, I'm not the permanent war kind of person uh, temperamentally. Uh, it seems just an awful lot of work for not much gain. And again, I think this is maybe the issue, is that the UK now is in a relatively weak position uh, now that it is 
outside of the EU and has been for uh, over a year now. That it cannot count on the intrinsic tendency of the system to look out for its members because it is no longer a member. Instead, the Commission now works for the 27 rather than for the 28. So it shouldn't be surprising that uh, there are uh, going to be uh, points at which there are disagreements in which the UK is on the wrong side of the argument. And, all things being equal, the UK is likely to have to cleave to the EU's position. However, if it chose to engage in close relationships, it would know about these things. It would have perhaps a stock of goodwill with which to find more uh, beneficial outcomes. Bilateral relations are going to be really important, most obviously with Ireland, because Ireland is easily the most important uh, uh, member state in all of this, even more than the big states like France or Germany, because it needs uh, and wants and must have uh, a protocol system that works. And by extension, uh, the TCA generally needs to be operational. So we find ourselves now in this ongoing transitional period. I think we're starting to see uh, the shaking out of those immediate problems, but now the more structural problems are coming to the fore. So just to wrap this up, let's think about that thing about volumes of trade returning to something like normal uh, conditions. What the Port Authority in Dover said was that they were back to 90% of movements of lorries. But that's not the same as the same volume of trade or the same value of trade. One of the things we know is that European hauliers have become more likely to return to the EU with empty loads because they've not wanted to have to deal with the paperwork that they now uh, would be required to do uh, as a result of the TCA. So, if you like, this is a, a metaphor for where we are. We've got lorries on the road, but whether they've got anything in them is a different point and a different matter. Perhaps in the next uh, few months we might see some shifts, but at the moment the general impression is that this relationship between the UK and the EU is not going to be a smooth one. Uh, it's hard to see how this government changes its tune uh, given uh, its actions over the past few months. So if you want a short answer to all of this, Brexit is very much not done and the permanent negotiations between the two sides have already begun and will continue for the foreseeable future, even before we get to any kinds of new treaties or new agreements or anything else. Just making the system stay on the road is going to take considerable effort, and uh, at some point, somebody might say, is it really worth doing it like this? Is this really working? Which means more episodes of this podcast. Until then, I shall leave you and talk to you soon.